Hey everyone, this is Stefan Miller and welcome to The Forever Student. Celeste Hadley is an award-winning journalist, professional speaker, and best-selling author of We Need to Talk, How to Have a Conversation That Matters. Her TED Talk, her TEDx Talk, 10 Ways to Have a Better Conversation, has over 30 million views total to date. Her most recent book, Do Nothing, How to Break Away from Overworking, Overdoing, and Underliving, helps us break free of our unhealthy devotion to efficiency and shows us how to reclaim our time and humanity with a little more leisure. Celeste, welcome to The Forever Student. Thank you for having me. Glad to be here. Super excited to have you. And the first thing that I wanted to ask you was, why did you write this book? Could you touch on that and maybe a little bit on your own journey leading up to that? Yeah, because I really wasn't intending to write this book. I was actively working on a, a completely different book at the time. Um, but I started having trouble. I had started really, really struggling with burnout, which I've, I've danced around with burnout all my life. Um, I'm an overachiever, like so many people are, uh, but it became insurmountable. And so really, I, I wasn't trying to write a book. I was just trying to do some research to figure out what was happening with me. Um, I'm, I'm a generally extremely healthy person. I got super sick three times in a, in this, the span of like maybe six to nine months. Um, and I just had to figure out what was going on. And so I just kept peeling back that onion, trying to find the source of all the stress and all the anxiety. And eventually I realized uh, it wasn't me, it was us, right? Like every friend, when I told him I was having those problems was like, <laughs> oh my God, me too, me too, me too, me too. And so at that point it became a book. And so going a bit deeper into the book about doing nothing, which is, which is such an interesting title because it's so hard for, for any of us to do nothing really, but where does our fascinate, fascination or even obsession with productivity come from? And how have we fallen victim to this so-called cult of effectiveness? Yeah, and, and I, that was the biggest aha moment for me was finding out that this all kind of stems back to the industrial revolution. Um, because that that's there's like a really definitive line between the way human beings lived for most of our 300,000 years or so on the planet. And then comes the industrial revolution and then it almost everything changes. And I mean, I don't know what you were taught in school about the industrial revolution, but they definitely buried that headline. Like they did not, I did not learn how, how incredibly impactful that was. Um, so when the industrial revolution came around, uh, before that time, time did not equal money. <laughs> you didn't earn according to how much time things took. You earned according to the what you were growing in your field or, or a, a specific item. If someone needed a wheel or a quilt or a piece of lace, that's what you earned for, um, not how much time you put into it. But as soon as you took the artisan class out, right? There's no longer independent artisans. There's a factory <laughs> making wheels, right? Um, then it doesn't matter who's on that. You know, it doesn't matter if Michelangelo is on your factory line. All that matters is that he puts in <laughs> his 16 hours a day and keeps up with the rest of the line. 
right? And that was mind blowing to me. And, and essentially what has happened is every generation has simply leaned in and leaned in and leaned in until we've gotten to the point where it's just unsustainable. And I guess where, that's where the, the sentence time is money comes from. Yeah. And it, I mean, it's so literal that what I found in my research was that some at the time, uh, we're talking the 19th century, there were some business owners who would literally steal time by changing the clocks so that their employees didn't realize it was quitting time and time to go home. Like literally, that's how literal that is. They weren't stealing money. <laughs> they were stealing their time. Oh my God. And what, can you speak a little bit to what has happened over time between, let's call it the work-life balance or our work slash time off balance, because I feel like it's become sort of a gray area, maybe even before COVID, but especially now during COVID where, you know, a lot of us are working from home and we're not used to working from home. And so now we're used to basically being even more online and more accessible 24-7. Yeah, there was a really useful phrase that I, I learned uh, while reading some study reports from a think tank in Australia, and it was polluted time. And that's what they use to describe all that time when we're supposed to be off, but it's polluted by emails and texts and Slack messages and the constant ways that it just intrudes into our work life. And just as you, as you mentioned, it was bad enough before the pandemic became, began. But then, um, especially for those people who were working at home, but really for everybody, because the data shows that people's workdays have gotten longer and they're having more meetings <laughs> than they had before the pandemic started. Um, one way that I've heard people describe it is um, we're, not, we're not working at home, we're living at work. Wow. Yeah. Um, that's how blurred that line has become. And some of it goes the other way, right? I mean, we work such long hours that, you know, when you're at work, when you're supposed to be on work time, we make reservations and we buy shoes and we pay our utility bills. Um, some of it goes that way, but most of it goes the other way with work intruding on our personal lives. Basically, when we're having dinner with our family or our kids, we're checking our email. Exactly so. Like, what would you recommend in order to remedy that? I think I would love to tackle it from a pre-COVID standpoint where, you know, how can we become more aware of the time that we're spending at work and at home and, and that gray area? So first you have to decide on a quitting time. Um, and maybe that's not when you, you know, quote unquote, leave work. Um, Maybe it's it's not possible that your job can end at five o'clock or four o'clock, but you have to decide when it does end. When do you stop checking your business emails? There's a few things. I've turned off almost every notification on my phone and computer. Um, I, I no longer see that those numbers in the corner of my email inbox going up. <laughs> I have no idea if there's new emails in there or not. Um, and my, I've, uh, at, at like 8 PM, my screen goes dark. It goes into black and white. So that reminds me, stop looking at your phone. But honestly, my quitting time is long before that. Like basically my quitting time for the day is, is 4 PM barring some exceptions. So after 4 PM, you will not get an email back from me. 
right? You have to choose that quitting time. So, so you basically have a quitting time, which means I'm going to quit all work. And then you have a put my phone away time, which may be a bit later because that obviously has social, uh, a social element to it as well. Yeah, exactly so. That's fantastic. And I mean, I also know that, you know, blue lights uh, affect your sleep and your circadian rhythm and your rest and, and whatever else. So disconnecting from your screen and also waking up to not looking at your phone immediately are extremely beneficial for your health. Yeah. And, but don't, you know, there's so many, um, tactics and they've installed things on people's phones and people's screens where you can turn off the blue light, but I don't want people to think that because they've, you know, <laughs> reduced the blue light that they can just keep work looking at their phone right up until they go to sleep. I mean, there has to be a, a moment at some point, even if it's only 20 minutes before you hit the bed, where you put the phone down. And I really recommend you don't keep it in the room with you. Put it in another room. Um, it's, it's, we people do not understand the cognitive load on your brain yeah. with the presence of that phone. And so the reason this connects back to work is that, you know, so often when you get people get a break from work, the first thing, you know, they'll get take 15 minutes or whatever. The first thing they do is check their phone. <laughs> but to your brain, checking that phone is exactly the same as work. It, it, there's no difference. It does not know the difference between you checking on your Facebook feed and writing a memo. So as far as your brain is concerned, you didn't take a break. You just continued to work. And by the time you get to the end of the day, you're going to be exhausted. So just to simplify that even, even further down, what would a real break look like? You would not be looking at your phone or any screen whatsoever. Hopefully you would leave the room where they are. Um, I, when I need to take a break, I get up and walk away. I'll walk outside and I will walk outside without my phone. <laughs> um, or I'll go and I'll water my plants or I will go and do some dishes and you know turn on music for 15 minutes. Um, it, th that break is gonna look different to everybody else, but I have to choose things that give me an actual cognitive break yeah yeah that makes absolute sense and i think as well i think you've touched on this in, in a few of your talks where where you say that you know we have yes we have very busy lives but there's also quite a few people that are against taking holidays because of how they would be perceived by their peers or by their colleagues or by their bosses could you talk a little bit more on that or if there's any data around that? Yeah, and this is one of the things I, I tried to include quite a bit of the data into the book um, because Americans at least donate billions to their employers in un, untaken vacation time, billions. And when I ask people, okay, let's figure out how much money you donated to your employer this year and whether or not that's where you, what, where you wanted to put your money. Did you want, did you mean to donate $8,000 to your employer? Most people, when they, you put it that way, and this goes back to the time is money, right? Um, you've, you've got, given them money back basically, but that it's this, it's this incorrect assumption that by taking vacation, you're harming your career. When in fact, the data goes the other way. We know that people who take all of or most of their vacation time are more likely to get promotions. They're more likely to get raises. 
they also report quite a bit more happiness with their lives. Um, So, I mean, not only are there personal benefits to it and health benefits to it, but it also in the end is better for your career than continuing to just slave away. What's the reason that we don't take the holidays in the first place? Uh, we're brainwashed. And and I, I know that's a powerful term to use, but I use it very intentionally. Um, there was a period of time, especially in the early 20th century, when literally both government forces and corporate forces uh, were trying to convince workers to continue work long hours. And they used all kinds of ways. They put those messages into movies by funding movies and having them put those messages in there. They created posters that went up all over the place. They donated to pastors and and um, religious leaders and had those in, them include those messages in their sermons. It became a campaign to convince people that the more you worked, the more worthy a person you were. Um, that people who didn't work a lot were not just lazy, which is bad enough in our culture, right? But they were bad. They deserved whatever was coming to them and whatever was coming to them should probably be awful. So we have internalized this generation after generation, so much so that if somebody sits down at this point, I know many of my friends who, if they sat down on the couch and did nothing, 10 minutes, they would feel guilt and shame. I mean, that's incredible to me. I mean, think about that for a moment. If you think back to our our ancestors and how many cultures have this image in our our heads of grandfathers and great-grandfathers sitting on porches or sitting out outside houses, drinking a coffee or, or smoking a pipe or whatever it may be. Do we think they should feel ashamed about that? (laughs) Is that what we see when we see those pictures? So why do we do this to ourselves? And it's because we have been brainwashed. I think if anything, we we judge those people for, for doing nothing. And we say, why aren't you doing anything? It's the complete opposite. We're rather looking up to them and say, hey, that's actually probably the right way to live. Yeah, absolutely. And and come on. It, life was harder for them. Yeah. If you go around your house and think about all the things that you have, the time savers that you have now, as opposed to your grandparents or your, or your great grandparents, it was harder for them. <laughs> and yet they found time to do crafts and wood, you know, wood carving and play cards and sit down and actually just listen to music without doing anything else as well. How have you gone about? understanding where you've spent your time and how did you then make the little adjustments and pivots accordingly? Yeah, so this is really important. And it's one of the first things that I I tell people that they have to do, and that is to get a a record of how their time is spent. Um, In recent years, our, our time awareness, our time perception is how scientists call it, has gone down, 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 down. Meaning that most of us don't really know how we spend our hours. It means that if I were to ask you, how much time do you think you spend surfing the internet? Just clicking links. 
whatever you told me probably wouldn't be right. <laughs> so the first, <laughs> the first thing that everybody has to do is create an actual diary of how you spend your days. It's just like when you're trying to get a hold of your nutrition, your nutritionist will say, create a food diary, right? We need to know what you're eating. Same thing. And nobody else is going to see it. So you can be absolutely honest. If you spent 90 minutes looking at boots, then we need to, you need to know that, right? So you basically what I did was I just got a notebook and I separated it into half hours. And every half hour, I would write down, what did I just do the 30 minutes before? And you did this for how long? I did that for like two or three weeks. You don't necessarily have to do it for that long, but you need a good, you know, every day changes. So you sort of need a, a pretty good period of time. I would say a minimum of two weeks to really get an idea of where your time is going. And then you can ask yourself, you can go back and look and say, like for me, I had to go back and realize I was spending a lot of time just idly clicking on stuff on the internet, not directed. I wasn't researching. <laughs> I was just like surfing around. And I had, then I had to ask myself, okay, how much time do I have at my disposal every day? Like time that I'm not commuting or eating or sleeping, right? What is the amount of time I have free? And out of that time, I think it came out to like five or six hours a day for me. I was wow. spending 90 minutes of that idly surfing around. Is that really how I wanted to spend a third of my free time? I don't know, of course not then you can sort of start making your priorities. What was the biggest surprise finding that you found during that time, good or bad? Um, I had no idea I spent as much time walking my dog as I do. <laughs> I think that's a good thing. Which I'm actually okay with, <laughs> but it was a surprise to me how much of my time was devoted to that. I didn't change a thing about that, by the way. That would just came as a surprise. Um, other than the idly surfing thing, I think I was surprised at how often I was refreshing my email. I mean, mm. I was doing that like every 10 minutes and completely unnecessarily. The vast majority of the emails that we get are either completely irrelevant or not urgent at all. So why we feel this need to check email constantly is insane. And when you look at the, the uh, results of leaving your email open all the time, I mean, we know that having your email open somewhere in the background on the computer distracts your brain at all times. And so much so that when they tested it in the laboratory, they found that having that email inbox open lowered people's IQs by 10 to four, somewhere between 10 to 14 points. Wow. Meaning a grown man was suddenly the same mentality of like an eight-year-old kid. Have you realized whether your, your ability to focus, concentrate, or, or just your level of presence also increased as a result of going through this exercise? Oh, so much so. You know, it's funny because uh, 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 when I do podcast interviews, people always think they have a gotcha question for me. Like <laughs> <laughs> you keep telling people to do nothing and yet you've done all this stuff. And I'm like, yeah, but I get it done so fast now that I have the rest of my day to just hang out, right? I'm doing all this other stuff and you think I'm being super productive. The fact of the matter is I'm being productive because I'm being intentional about how I spend my time. When I need to focus, I shut every other tab. 
I turn on some focus music and that is what I do. But I, I really try hard to do one task at a time and I do not leave my email inbox open all the time. Mm. I wanted to chat a bit about competitiveness as well and how that comes into play with all this. And then particularly looking at, I guess it relates, how social media plays a part in our need to outshine others and compare ourselves to others. You know, it's interesting. I didn't, um, I didn't, I haven't researched very much about competitiveness in terms of like getting ahead of other people at work, but I did a lot of research in terms of these social comparisons we make. Um, and I, I know one sociologist said, you know, we're no longer trying to keep up with the Joneses. We're trying to keep up with the Kardashians. <laughs> in past years, let's say you, you, th- you had a, a barbecue in your backyard. Um, you would invite all your neighbors, even the ones you didn't like, even the ones you didn't ag- agree with politically. Every, that, was the, that was the polite thing to do. You invited everybody. Um, and they all came over and then, you know, one guy was going to be bragging about his new Buick <laughs> with the white wall <laughs> tires <laughs> and another one's going to be bragging in that they got to do, you know, big screen TV or whatever it may be. You're comparing yourself with people who are pretty much similar to you in terms of background and occupation and income. Now we don't have those barbecues anymore. We don't know our neighbors and so we're, we're unable to compare with them. We're comparing ourselves to the people that we see on TV and on Instagram, which is insane. Of course, you are not going to be able to buy the same Dooney Burke purse that Beyonce is. Um, but that's what we're sort of expecting ourselves of ourselves. And it creates this um, eternal dissatisfaction. It creates this idea that you're you've never made it, you've never sort of reached a plateau of accomplishment because you cannot keep up with the people whose lives you know best. And what do you feel is might be a very loaded question, but like, what do you feel the remedy is to that? Because in in my eyes, it's one social media is an addiction in and of itself. Two it's extremely easy for us to compare ourselves with people on social media. And, and one of the reasons is because of what you just mentioned, that the meaningful re- relationships that we used to have uh, 10 years ago, 20 years ago with our direct community, meaning our family and our neighbors and their kids, et cetera, um, that, has sort of, that, has, that has decreased significantly. And we now live quite isolated lives, at least if you live in urban cities. So yeah, my question is more around how do we, how do we go about remedying this comparison factor that you were talking about? So if I were to tell you, um, I want you to stop comparing yourself to people whose lifestyle is beyond you, what would you do? I'd make an effort, but I don't, I don't know if, I don't know if I would consciously have it in me to do that on on a regular basis without sort of lapsing, I guess. Yeah, I think that the the best thing to do is stop following anybody who you don't know, especially yeah. in places like Instagram where you can see their pictures. Like I I don't follow celebrities. Um, there's a few celebrities I follow only because they don't post stuff about what they're wearing. They post they're in activism, right? Like that's what they're posting about. <clears throat> and and it, anybody who's posting 
anything that has to do with purchases or vacations or lifestyle for the at writ large, I do not follow those people anymore. It's the same thing on Twitter. I, I actually um, deleted my Facebook account um, for a variety of reasons. I am way more careful about what comes into my brain now. I don't yeah. want that seeping in. Yeah, that's actually and good And I advice. get to know my neighbors. <laughs> I got to know my neighbors. Was that, was, was that, did you sort of force that upon them? No, I mean, when, when I moved, I, I bought a new house in 2019, but I have done this for at least 10 years where when I moved to a new place, I, I write down on an index card, my name and my contact information. And I go to the neighbor's houses to say, Hey, I just moved in, you know, blah, 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 blah. Here's me. Don't be shy. <laughs> I'm black and I'm Jewish. There's always some kind of food cooking in my house. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, here's my contact info. It's good to meet you. And then I, I, what I do is I, I actually create a, a, a little map of the neighborhood right around my house. And I, I write people's names inside their houses. <laughs> so I know where everybody lives and I'll write their pets names and their kids names. Um, so that I, I, I start to get to know them. And if I see them on the street, I can say, hi, Vicky, hi, Sinead, as opposed to just, hey, <laughs> and no, they weren't, it wasn't difficult at all. It, you know, it's interesting that one of my um, favorite researchers is a guy named Nicholas Epley, who, who uh, teaches in Chicago. He wrote a book called Mindwise. And one of the things he writes in there is, um, he says, you know, almost nobody waves, but everybody waves back. Mm. And this is a thing that we forget. Um, we get so caught up in our fear of how people are going to respond when we reach out. But the fact of the matter is, is that they're going to respond positively. <laughs> That's so true. That's so true. Firstly, I'm going to write those notes tonight and send them, send them to all my neighbors because I think that's fantastic advice. I, uh, I wanted to dive a little deeper into that because I feel like we've lost this ability to create meaningful relationships, I think, especially at a younger age. Uh, one, what do you think has happened to that? And, um, and then I'll follow up with a few more questions on that. So the thing of it is, is that uh, younger people are just as socially adept as older people. They don't have fewer social skills. There are some differences though. Some of them are positive. For example, millennials um, research shows are better listeners than baby boomers. Um, I don't know if you, in Dubai, did they say baby boomers? Do you guys know what that is? We do. <laughs> um, so older people, right? They're better listeners. Um, but younger people are more likely to believe that um, texting back and forth is pretty much the same as a conversation. And it is absolutely not by no definition, whether it be physiological, emotional, cognitive, texting back and forth is not a conversation. It's not a real social interaction. So if you're sitting on your couch watching Netflix and texting back and forth with your friends, you have not had a social interaction. You have been isolated. Um, that's the thing that we have to sort of I have to sort of break through for younger people is make them realize that 
for 300,000 years, we evolved to need social interactions, authentic social interactions. We need them in order to stay healthy. Um, and those social interactions look a certain way and sound a certain way. And they need to either be um, something that where you can hear somebody's voice or whether you can see their face. That's it. We are not suddenly going to be able to turn a knob and change our evolution so quickly that written communication works for us biologically. That's, it, that's just not how that works. I asked one scientist if written communication would at some point equal the effectiveness um, and the impact of uh, vocal communication using the through the voice. And she said it's possible in five to 10,000 years. That's a long time. Yeah. <laughs> None of us will be around. <laughs> we will probably not even be remembered at that point. So give it up. And you need to make sure that, that every day you are including social interaction the same way that you would include a gym appointment. That's how important it is. I mean, literally, before the, before the pandemic began, we were already um, in an epidemic of loneliness. Yeah. And loneliness will kill you. It's not a direct, you, know, you don't die of loneliness, but loneliness leads to the health conditions that will kill you. And, the, you know, they did a longitudinal study in the UK in which they followed a, a large group of men around for a long period of time, obviously, and realized eventually by simply by knowing how many authentic social interactions they had, they could predict who'd still be alive in 10 years with a fair degree of accuracy. Yeah, it's it's similar. Yeah, you have it's, to make those appointments. Yeah, 100%. And it's similar to um, the blue zones in the world where, where people live, uh, mostly live uh, to, uh, to 100 or older. And outside of their active lifestyle and the food that they ate, it's it was very much about the meaningful and close relationships that they had and the close friends that they had and, and outlets and outlets for conversation and knowing their neighbors <laughs> and knowing their neighbors. Yep. hundred percent. So I think this conversational competence that has decreased over, over time is something that really needs to come back. Um, what, what other issues slash challenges have you seen from the, the drastic increase in screen time. You know, I have been very concerned about the number of people who want to identify, who choose to identify as introverts, um, which is just not true. <laughs> there are very few true introverts in the world. They are rare. And even Carl Jung, who invented the terms extroversion and introversion, even he was, was describing them as the very tail ends of a spectrum, right? Um, most of us live in the, in the middle space. That's the healthy, adaptable space um, where sometimes you need to be alone and sometimes you need to be around people. But if you're forced, if you have to go to a work function and talk to a bunch of people, you can. Um, most of us are ambiverts in the middle somewhere. The reason it's so dangerous for people to start constantly saying they're introverts when they are not is that it becomes a vicious cycle. So someone identifies, says I'm an introvert, that makes it more likely that they will avoid social interaction, which makes it more likely that their social skills will deteriorate, which then makes it more likely that when they do have a social interaction, it will feel awkward and uncomfortable, which then makes it more likely that they will say that they're an introvert. 
So it becomes a very unhealthy cycle. And how, okay, I love this because I know quite a few people like that. And also based on sort of their level of, of social interactions, uh, you're completely spot on. But how do you go about one advising someone like that to essentially step outside of their comfort zone and, and start having proper conversations and, and stop identifying as an introvert? I usually say stop calling yourself an introvert, full stop, right away, immediately, done, no more. Um, but for the most part, I, I, I try to tell people to take baby steps. Like this sounds facile, but I, I advise people to, to just have that 90 second conversation with your grocery store clerk and your barista. Ask them about the weather, ask them how their day's going. A, they are paid to be nice to you. So it's pretty much going to be a positive interaction and they will smile at you. <laughs> B, you know, it's going to be short right? It's time limited. There's no fear that you're going to be stuck in a conversation, which is a lot of people's fear. And so you can start to tip, tip, uh, sort of dip your toe in the water. The other thing is that we have this developing research about uh, what's called the power of weak ties. And it's one of the things that have, has made people feel so lonely during the pandemic is that they've lost all these weak ties. Weak ties are like the quick hello with the security guard at your building, mm. um, the people you pass on the street, all those little tiny micro interactions that you have that we, as the more research we do into them, end up having a really outsized impact on your mood and um, your attitude and on your health. So you can start by simply upping those weak ties, walk through your neighborhood and say hello to every single person that passes. Um, just, hi, have a good day. <laughs> Be that person. Um, and, and you can start that way because there's no threat, right? You are not gonna get stuck. Nothing bad is gonna happen. And that will start creating a more virtuous cycle where the more of those that you have, the more that's going to increase your oxy, your oxytocin, your serotonin, those things that make you feel good, flood your brain and your body with good feeling. And it's going to, it's going to start self-rewarding. I love that. Just say hi to everyone on your path. Remember, almost nobody waves. I love that. That's my favorite advice of the day. I wanted to talk a bit about working from home as well, because obviously that's become the norm now. And a lot of mental health issues have stemmed as a result have uh, have really come to light. Do you, have you thought about different things that we could potentially do to maintain our mental health while working from home? Yeah, well, the first one is of course, create your working hours. Just imagine you're a business on Google and you have to answer the question, when do you open and when do you close? So that's first, when's your lunch hour? <laughs> When, when is it? The other thing is, is do not allow work to claim every part of your house. So what's happening right now is people are grabbing their laptops and they're just working from everywhere in their whole house. You know, they'll feel like eating. They'll move their laptop to the kitchen table. they work there. They'll sit on the couch, work there, sit on their front porch. But you have to think about this from a, a clinical standpoint. You know, when you're having trouble sleeping, one of the first things a sleep doctor will tell you is, do nothing else in your bed except sleep. You're trying yeah. to train your brain that when you lie down, you're supposed to be sleeping. Well, by moving your laptop all over and taking your work calls from everywhere, including your bathroom, 
you're training your brain that the entire house is for work, which means your brain will be on alert everywhere in your house. There will be no refuge for you. You need to create most of the space in your home as a place where your brain will relax. At ease, right? You say to soldiers, at ease. You, the Most of your house, you need to be at ease. So cre set aside your workspace. And um, if a, a business call comes in, you move to that workspace, take the call. And then when you hang up, you leave it. And then you're not at work anymore. Um, another thing that you, you need to do is you need to make sure that you are working in sprints. Um, so the way that our brains function best is uh, pulsing, right? We pulse between focus and relaxation, focus and relaxation. One of the reasons we're seeing so much burnout recently is because we're trying to stay focused all day long and you simply can't do it. Your brain only has so much focused work in it during the day. So you need to make like, choose your hour. And, and I, and I, in the book, I go through how exactly to figure out what your time is. My turn turned it out being like, I think maybe 47 minutes or something at a time. That's all I got. And then I need to go up, get up and take a 15 minute break and not work. You need to find your time. How much time do you have of focus before you start getting distracted, before you start clicking on other tabs, before you start looking around your space, before you start getting up to get drinks of water? Are those things that show that your, your brain is want kind of wandering off? That's when you need to get up and take a break. You're not supposed to, you know, the, the phrase I hate, I just loathe is uh, rise and grind. Mm. I freaking hate that phrase. <laughs> I mean, do, think about what you're saying. That you're supposed to get up in the morning and grind yourself into your work? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. You need to come up with your morning routine that puts you in the best position to maintain well-being throughout the day. Don't grind anything. <laughs> So I couldn't find agree more. your rhythm. Yeah, find your rhythm. And what's your what's your morning routine? I'm super curious. So um, I do. I get up in the morning. I feed my dog. I you know do all the things. People brush teeth, all that other stuff in the morning. I I actually brush my hair out on my front porch just so I can kind of get an idea of how cold it is. How you know what's the day like? And then I go do a 15 minute workout. Um. And then I take my dog for a 45 minute walk <laughs> immediately. <laughs> 45 um, minutes. Yeah. Lucky dog. 45 minutes. She gets two of those every day. Um, and then I come home and usually I do some meditation at that point. And I sort of look over my schedule. You know, before I go to bed at night, I will write down my schedule for the next day. It, I just do a brain dump because it helps me sleep better. Um, and then I'll go back and I'll look at my schedule and sort of plan out how I want to spend my time and make my coffee. And yeah, that's my mornings. Yeah. And to your evening point, one of the things that I've started doing is write down what I've done throughout the day itself. And it could just be like two, three things. Like I had a podcast interview with Celeste. I worked out. I went for a walk. I walked my dog, whatever it may be. and 
it gives you the sense of accomplishment. It's super weird, but it gives you the sense of accomplishment. Oh, no, I and, do the same thing. Yeah. And it just, it just sort of, yeah, it makes you, it makes you feel a bit more accomplished because I think often when we go through the motions and we just grind as, uh, as you just said, and we, and we don't really stop to think about, you know, what we've actually done and what we've actually accomplished and the nice conversations that we've actually had, you, you start, yeah, you start sort of feeling under accomplished. And I think that's one great practice. And then secondly, planning your day the night before is one, you know, probably the best way to just brain dump and, and, uh, and just be ready for, be ready for the next day. I completely agree with that. Oh, it's such a small thing. And it's so powerful, you know, especially if you have trouble getting to sleep at night, sometimes that's because your brain is trying to work out you know, what do I need to do tomorrow? Like it'll sit there going, it will grind, right? Or what are the kind of things? And we're trying to remember those things. And if you just dump it all onto a page, it doesn't have to be pretty. It doesn't have to be beautifully laid out in some bullet journal with illustrations. If it is awesome, excellent, but it doesn't have to be, it can be scribbled onto a piece of paper. Just dump it all onto a piece of paper. And, um, when I get up in the morning, you know, I, I use Todoist, but I use it in a way that's super, I guess you would call it not professional. Like I put everything on there. Like if I don't want to do the dishes, I will put the dishes on my list because when I finish them, I want to feel accomplished about it. I want to be able to hit that check mark and be like, I did it. So I just use that as sort of like, and then I separate things out into this. These will take, these are the things that'll take me less than 10 minutes. And if I'm having a rough day, I'll go into that less than 10 minutes thing and just like knock out a yeah. bunch of stuff. And it feels, oh, <laughs> it feels awesome. It feels so good. And I, I'm a big believer in um, small victories over medium failures. And what I mean by that is, for instance, if I told you, and let's say you've never worked out before, and I told you, okay, how often do you want to work out and how long do you want to work out for? And you say, I want to work out three times a week for 45 minutes. I say, okay, great. Come back to me next week and see how you got along. Next week you come and you said, oh, by the way, I didn't work out once. So yeah. <laughs> then what is the solution? What is the solution to that? You, you, you go through that person's routine, morning routine, for instance. So Celeste, you go through your morning routine, you don't work out and, and you make coffee for two minutes. I'll tell you, do squats for those two minutes or do push-ups for those two minutes. That's it. That's all you need to do. And do that three times a week. All of a sudden, you're now programming yourself and setting yourself up for success, right? So you, you have these little successes over medium failures. And a medium failure in this case would be not doing those three times, 45-minute workouts. And the, the effect on just your mood and, and your sense of accomplishment just skyrockets just because you've, you've started doing this. I, I, when I could not agree more. And in fact, that's how I've ended up getting through the pandemic because I love my gym and I would go like three or four times a week for like an hour. Um, but when the gyms closed, I kept up my hope for a really long time. Like I still walk my dog from my, like, I never do less than 11,000 steps a day. Like that's never wow. going to happen because I'm, I'm walk my dog in the, in the forest, right. Not on a paved path in the woods. Um, but in terms of like my strength training, 
I just, I held out hope, I think too long for the gym. And in order to get back into it, I had to, I had to start 15 minutes at a time. I'd be like, look, every other day I can do 15 minutes at home. I can do that. <laughs> and so I canceled my gym membership and I, that's how I started getting back into it. That's, I mean, that's just a, absolutely six. And I say this to my son who hates cleaning his house and he's trying to get his house organized. And I'll be like, do one thing. Every time you get up and go to the bathroom, grab one item and put it away. One thing. That's it. And eventually, yeah. eventually you'll have a clean house. Eventually. It might take a little longer, but yeah. it will. It will happen. I mean, eventually he'll, he'll realize how easy it is to put one thing away. And he'll be like, well, I could put away a few things. <laughs> right. And it's the same thing with working out. Like I started out at 15 minutes. And then, of course, I realized, hey, I can do 15 minutes every day right? I don't have to do it every other day. It really doesn't make a dent in my schedule. I'll just do it every day. And then it becomes 20 minutes. And then you realize you can accommodate it and it becomes really motivating. It doesn't seem scary anymore. Yeah. hundred percent. Do you journal at all? I do not every day, but I do journal. Yeah. And what do you sort of, what, what sort of benefits have you seen from that? I know that you obviously you write a lot period, but like from a journaling standpoint specifically. Yeah, and I think that's sort of why I don't journal every day is because I write all the time. Um, but there's a couple things. Like I buy myself like a really beautiful journal. Like my journal is this raw leather and it feels there's a tactile sensation to it and a heft. And I am really into fountain pens. So I have these beautiful that I've invested in, you know, that cost like 200 bucks each, right? That you maintain and they're beautiful. And so I want to make for myself the journaling experience to be, um, I want it to, to engage my senses. I want it to be a sort of a special event for me. And by um, using a fountain pen, it forces me to slow down. You cannot write super, super fast with a fountain pen. So it's just one of those things that's sort of meditative for me um, that every few days I will sit down and say, okay, so what have I been doing? Like, what is important? And it, it does force you to think about what are you grateful about? I try to make sure that my journal isn't like every paragraph isn't about me. Like if I go through mm -hmm. and I write a journal en entry and everything's about me and my life, I'm like, wait a second, what's happened with my friends? <laughs> Like what's going on with my son? Like what, what's happening with them? And I make sure I write that down also. Um, it, it's just sort of a way to, to, to give myself a, a moment of reflection. Uh, yeah. I couldn't, so I couldn't agree get. more. Yeah. I couldn't agree you more. You journal also? I, I try to, I meditate quite, um, quite heavily. Um, I have, I do about 20 minutes in the morning, 20, 30 minutes in the evening. And it just one, I think my morning meditation really helps me be intentional about my day. So it helps me set up my day and my evening meditation is really, you know, looking back at the day and it's reflecting and it's dealing with, it's dealing with thoughts. And, and one of the things that I increasingly feel is that we're, we're very afraid to sit in silence because we don't know what might cross our minds. And we haven't really gone through this, especially now, by the way. And this is why I mentioned screen time before, because I feel that whenever something difficult enters our minds, we distract ourselves. And that distraction is often looking at the TV or looking at our phone or yes. whatever it may be that's like right next to us and accessible. And so we've never really 
taking the time to journal or to meditate or to do something that that mimics those two things like walking your dog without having your phone in and of itself to me is a meditation I agree. um because you you can't really distract yourself like you still you're still you know doing this one particular activity so um so yeah for me meditation has been has been my main thing i, I try to journal once a while but but my writing usually happens um, when I schedule my days or, or when I reflect back on my days. And, you know, the other thing, and this is one of the things I, I wrote about in the book, is that um, I, I want us to reclaim boredom. Uh, you know, boredom is something that people just don't feel anymore. As soon as you begin to feel even the touch of boredom, you unlock your phone. Um, and But boredom is a, a very fertile and healthy state of mind. Mm. Um, when you start to feel boredom, you know, I, one of the exercises I'll give, especially to executives, if they are, you know, overworked and, and burning out, is I'll say every day I want you to sit down in the, the most comfortable chair you have and just sit there until you begin to feel bored. And then I want you to sit for another 10 minutes. And then... <laughs> I want you to yeah. write down in a paper what it is you're thinking about. Because what happens is if you sit down and just sit with yourself, even if it's not quiet, your brain doesn't like it, right? It's trying to find something to occupy itself. So it'll start thinking about music lyrics. You'll, that's how sometimes you'll get a song stuck in your head. Or you'll start looking around your house and you'll notice things that you haven't noticed or looked at for a long time. Oh, yeah, I needed to go buy another filter for the humidifier. Oh, yeah, I needed to do this. And you'll start to remember you haven't checked in with your aunt for like four months. Oh, holy <laughs> cow, I need to call blah, blah, blah. Things will bubble up your brain will start making connections that are surprising. It'll start remembering things that are surprising because it's basically like sifting through the, cap the catalog going, okay, what can I do? What can I do? What can I do? What can I do? That's an incredibly fertile and productive state of mind for your, your brain. And I want people to learn how to sit with it because it's, yeah. it's one way to tap into your creativity. The point on boredom is such an interesting one because we really... It's so true. Like, I can't even remember the last time that I was like genuinely bored because I would yeah. find something to do. I would, I would find some way to either distract myself or some activity to, uh, some activity to do, but never really, I was never really at a point where I'm like, okay, I'm bored now. But do you remember being bored as a kid? hundred percent. I remember yeah. it so well because I would just, you know, you, I remember telling my parents all the time, I'm so bored. Like, let me go and play football or play tennis or meet this friend or can I call this person but it, it was it was almost like a daily or once every two days sort of thing yeah and it's 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 actually how a kid taps into creativity you they're you know they get in trouble you send them to their room they'll sit there and twiddle their fingers for a while and then they start looking around their room to find something to occupy themselves with creative for it exactly create a fort start building weird stuff with your legos you know that's there's so much that we're missing out on by not allowing our minds to be unoccupied by not forcing our brains to go a wandering yeah i love that and do you have any other let's call them value adding habits that you have in your day that are worth sharing yeah i try to engage in stuff that adds no value 
I tried oh, I like, to. <laughs> I get what you're saying. Yeah. <laughs> I, you know, one of the reasons I think the pandemic was so difficult for so many people is that we've created homes where there's nothing to do that's not connected to value, right? Like my parents and grandparents, they collected stamps, they polished rocks, they did <laughs> like knitting, they had all these totally useless habits and activities. Um, scrapbooks that they were never going to show to anybody else, right? <laughs> they went through their slides, um, all this kind of stuff. We don't do any of that stuff anymore. In fact, we look back and we're a little bit smug about it. Like, how did you have time to do that? But those are actually super good for you to have stuff that you can't post on Instagram, to, to do things that don't really add value to your life. Those are actually way more important and constructive and healthy than anybody could ever realize. So get us a coin collection, right? Like learn how to whittle and, and be okay with being terrible at it. You don't have to be so good at something that you can sell it on Etsy. Just like find something you like to do. Don't learn to play guitar because you want to perform. Learn to play guitar because you like playing your favorite Pearl Jam songs or something. Just, you know, do stuff that doesn't add any value. What has that been for you? Um, I'm a crazy plant lady. Uh, <laughs> I <laughs> love my plants. I have way, way, way too many of them. <laughs> They're not all beautiful. <laughs> Some of them, you know, we've had a rough relationship <laughs> and they're, you know, constantly in the, in, the, in the state of either thriving or recovering from some mistake I've made. Um, I grow my own herbs. Um, I, I mean, there's all kinds of stuff. I do a lot of needlepoint um, and I give it as gifts. And um, I have, I keep a notebook where I write, like when I read quotes or poems that I really like, I'll write them down in a notebook so that anytime I'm sitting around, I can like go through the notebook and every poem or quote in there I'm going to love because that's, I picked them. <laughs> it's my curated thing. Um, you know, I have all kinds of little, little hobbies like that. I, I mean, some of them I've, I've chosen that do add value. Like I, I put up a food pantry in my front yard. You know how people have the little free libraries with books inside? Yeah. I created a little free pantry and I put, you know, canned food and stuff in there. Um, it just says, you know, free, little free pantry, comida uh, gratis. And I put food in there for people who might be hungry. Um, you know, stuff like that. I like it. And it's basically doing things without expecting ROI, right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So just to, I, I kind of want to, be mindful of your time and close this, but like, I'm curious to hear what's the best advice you've ever received. And you know what, we'll narrow it down. We'll narrow it down specifically to, um, to this topic of, of mental health. So the best advice I've ever received, and I don't even remember who told me was, um, your happiness increases as the number of looks you give goes, goes down. There's an inverse relationship between how much you give a fuck and your happiness. And they're not, she wasn't talking about like, you know, caring about activism or anti-racism or, or stuff like that. She's talking about whether we, what, caring about whether people think of you. And the less you care, <laughs> the happier you will be. 
And I remember going into, I went in, this is before the pandemic, obviously, but I, I walked into Starbucks and I looked down and realized I still had my slippers on. <laughs> and I was like, oh my God. And at first, my first reaction was to feel embarrassed. But then I was like, you know what? Why do I care? <laughs> Why do I care? <laughs> I, I don't care. And that has been just it, having that in the back of my mind has allowed me to let go of so many things. And I think, by the way, like once you adopt that mentality, other things will follow. Like looking at the, the conversation we just had about social media and comparing ourselves to others. Like once you stop giving a phone, it's yeah, that is all going to subside. Yep. Yep. I'll, you know, it, it, it has, you know, like on social media, I do three exchanges, three back and forths. I say a tweet, people say something in, 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 I'm not talking about trolls. I'm talking about somebody who says, I don't know. I don't, I don't think you're correct. I will engage with them for three tweets. And then I'm like, you can have a good day. <laughs> I, I don't really care. So you get three and, and that's it. That's all you get. Uh, Celeste, where can people find more about you and more about your book online? Um, it's easy just to go to celesteheadley.com. And we keep, I keep everything there pretty, pretty updated. So um, I have a new book coming out in the fall called Speaking of Race, which is how to talk about race regardless of your color or politics. Um, so you can look for that. That's exciting. That's exciting. We want to thank you so much for, for being with us today. This was a super fun conversation. I really enjoyed it. And I think we also got a lot of value out of it uh, in parallel. So thank you so much for that. Very grateful. I really appreciate uh, your good questions and thanks for having me on. Thank you so much. Should we feel ashamed of doing nothing? No, absolutely not. Celeste says we've been brainwashed by the idea that we should always be switched on, always working and always available. We spoke about time and that our perception of how we spend our time has deteriorated and we're often unable to answer how our time is spent. That's why she suggests to create a record of your activities and time. How much time do you spend surfing the internet with family, watching Netflix, working out, working, etc.? Get a notebook, separate it into half hours, and track how you spend those intervals. Do that for a minimum of two weeks and then reflect on it. Then think about where you want to create change, prioritize, and go for it.